0: Hello all and welcome to Agast at the Past 1892. Today is all about the Tina Davis case. We're jumping headfirst into the trial and there's a lot to cover. So today we will talk about the prosecution's case against James Trefethen and William Smith. Trefethen is accused of killing his girlfriend Tina Davis and William Smith accused of aiding and abetting. So I'm sure you remember at least some of this case. I gave pretty regular reports of it in January um, until the two main suspects were arrested and indicted. And then the news of the case basically stopped while both sides prepared. Uh, It picked up again in the last week of April. And so that is where we are starting today. A real quick summary of the case. A young woman named Tina Davis who lived and worked with her mother. They ran a store together. She was visited frequently by a man named James Trefethen. He was a wholesaler, sold them supplies, actually even owned the building that they leased from him later on. He maintained their relationship was professional and would only occasionally have a conversation as friends and nothing else with Tina about the things going on in their lives. Tina's mother, however, offered a much different perspective on their relationship. They were an item, she insisted. Tina confided in her regularly about James. They'd been intimate more than once, and Tina became pregnant. And it was the news of her pregnancy, many assumed, that ultimately drove Trefethen to murder her. Picking her up under the pretenses of, of going out and talking and instead driving her three miles away to the remote Wellington Bridge where he would throw her into the river, murdered because he didn't want the baby, didn't want her, didn't want the complication as he loved someone else, at least that's what he said. And probably most importantly and most sadly, he did not want his reputation besmirched. And again, William Smith, his brother-in-law, acted as an accomplice in the whole affair. So the trial began on Monday, April 25th, 1892, at the Superior Courtroom in East Cambridge, Massachusetts. Attorney General Albert Enoch Pillsbury and District Attorney of Middlesex County, Cooney, prosecuted for the government while Marcellus Coggin and John Long, uh, we've mentioned uh, Coggin in earlier episodes, were retained by the defendants. And this actually is a bit enlightening here um, regarding the enormity of this case. (laughs) Albert Pillsbury for the prosecution was the current Massachusetts State Attorney General. And John Long for the defense actually had been the former governor of Massachusetts from 1880 to 1883. So these were powerful uh, men. And while little news had been written about the case in the paper through March and most of April, spectators were still eager to watch the details unfold in the courtroom. They strained to catch a glimpse of the two defendants. Most of the spectators were ladies Uh, The April 26th edition of the Boston Globe reported a lot of the women that came to watch the trial in person were dressed in colorful, flower-laden spring bonnets, (laughs) which lightened the somber courtroom atmosphere. The two men were brought into the courtroom, handcuffed together. Both were well-dressed and clean-looking. But Trefethen, a Globe reporter, believed looked worried. Smith, on the other hand, was confident and flashed a big smile as the handcuffs were unlocked. So Mr. Cooney began with his opening statement, eloquent and meant to gain maximum sympathy with the jury. First, he reminded the jury of his fairness. The defendants were allowed a jury of their peers, of course, but the circumstances, he said, which will be proved before you are various coexisting, coincident, coming from many sources and many witnesses tending to prove the same thing. He went on to summarize the prosecution's case. Deltina J. Davis, the victim, would have been 26 years old in February. She was the daughter of Daniel Davis of Bethel, Maine. Her father had been a doctor who practiced medicine until he passed away in 1881. She had a brother and sister, older and both married. After finishing school and spending a short stint teaching, Tina and her mother moved to Boston in 1887 to buy a dry and fancy goods store with money left them by Mr. Davis. So James Trefethen was a dry goods dealer and supplied stores like theirs with small articles of dry goods. So this is how they first met. It was professional initially but after a year or two trefethen began paying special attention to tina mr cooney explained to the jury that the prosecution would show how their relationship grew over time to the point where there was an understanding between them regarding marriage during some of these occasions mr cooney stated the circumstances will be shown upon which we shall ask you to believe that he accomplished her ruin or her seduction under a promise of marriage. His attentions continued, said Mr. Cooney, and they grew closer. Trefethen borrowed $300 from her and then talked her into selling her store in Charlestown and buying an old store that he owned and wanted to get rid of. They initially agreed on four hundred dollars but once she had committed he told her another bidder had asked for five hundred dollars which she needed to match she did as she was asked and paid him the money his plan was to tear down the old building with the store he had just sold her build a new building and give her space in the new structure in the meantime he told her that the $300 she had lent him actually was payment for goods he had supplied her in the past. Under normal circumstances, she might have argued with him about this, but she was deferential to him now, Mr. Cooney stated, because of the assumption that they would soon be married. He had her completely under his control, Cooney said, and could lead her or do with her as he liked. The evidence, he continued, will show that the seduction, having been accomplished in the Charlestown store, the connection was continued at intervals in the store at Everett. And that during the summer, probably in August, she conceived and became with child. That, of course, would have been August of 1891. When she made the discovery, she naturally turned to the author of her trouble and demanded of him the fulfillment of his promise. Exactly what took place and all that took place cannot be told because most of their conversations were had when they were alone and are known now only to one person and that is the defendant. But sufficient facts and circumstances will be shown from which it can clearly and plainly be inferred that she was pressing him to marry her. Sometime early in December, he came to her house, and they went out for a walk, she still urging him to marry her. On that occasion, he informed her that it was impossible that he could do so, giving undoubtedly as the reason the fact that he was already married. She then asked him for his marriage certificate. He told her that the other party had that, to use the words which had been communicated to me by the mother, since Tina's death. She then told him that she would investigate it, as she did not believe his story, and that if she found it was not so, she should insist on his keeping his promise and saving her from disgrace. Evidence will be offered, tending to show also that at this and other times, he tried to induce her to rid herself of her child by unnatural and unlawful means, and to which she scornfully refused to submit. She refused to add another sin to the one already committed. After her return from the walk, about nine o'clock in the evening, it was noticed by the mother that his visits ceased. For ten days, he failed to appear at the store or house at all although previously it had been his custom to visit her from one to four times a week. He became noticeably cooler. She began to go after him and to seek an opportunity for a conversation with him, rather than he with her. And on the 22nd of December, she went from her house, starting to go to Charlestown, to meet him at the horse cars at five o'clock, in order that she might have an opportunity to talk with him and convince him to inform him that she had investigated it and found that he was not a married man, and persuade him to keep his promise to her. Counsel then dealt with the circumstances that occurred down to the night of Tina's disappearance, substantially as they have already been published in the Globe. Speaking of the night of her disappearance, Counsel described the anxiety of the mother when her daughter failed to return and her agitation at not knowing what had befallen her. In the morning, a man who had sold pickled limes to the family came to the store. He inquired for Tina, as had been his custom, because she was the person with whom he always traded. He was informed that Tina went out the night before to meet Mr. Trefethen, and had not returned. And the mother asked him to call and tell Mr. Trefethen that she desired to see him. When the man, whose name was Brennan, reached Trefethen's house between 9 and 10 o'clock, he found Trefethen eating his breakfast. He told Trefethen of Tina's disappearance and asked him what he did with her. He immediately said, I have not seen her at all. Brennan asked him if he had married Tina and he replied that he had not, and furthermore that he could not marry her because he had been engaged to another lady for the past eight years. After some delay, he went up to Mrs. Davis's store, and she asked him what he had done with Tina. He said substantially, I have not seen her, Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis said, Yes, you have. You have spirited my child away or had procured somebody else to do it, as she went out last night to meet you on the corner. Mrs. Davis began to cry, and trefethen also cried, and said, How can you accuse me so? I am not guilty. They finally went into the back store, and after some talk he said, She will be found. I will do all I can to help find her. What can I do? She said, I am going immediately to the police station to notify the police and let them find her." He said that he would go and started off. The police station is perhaps 10 or 15 minutes' walk from Mrs. Davis's home, but he did not arrive there until 3.30 in the afternoon. He then found Mr. Emerton, who is the chief of the police, and Trefethen was so excited that Mr. Emerton told him to sit down and calm himself. He said that he was in trouble, that Tina Davis had disappeared, and that he was blamed for it. Mr. Emerton asked him for the particulars, and he said that Tina's mother said that she went out the night before to meet him and had not been seen since. He contended that he had not seen her, denied that he had paid her any attentions, or that he had ever had anything but the very purest business relations with her and that there was no reason in the world why he should have been suspected of being connected with her disappearance. After his departure, Mr. Emerton sent Sergeant Hewitt to Mrs. Davis's house to find out more of the particulars of the girl's disappearance. When he was there, a letter was brought to Mrs. Davis, which will play an important part in this case and upon which the prosecution greatly rely for his conviction. The letter was opened and read by Mr. Hewitt and taken by him with the caution to Mrs. Davis to say nothing to any person about having received it. The letter was taken to Mr. Emerton, put by him into his safe and there remained. No persons but Mrs. Davis, Mr. Hewitt and Mr. Emerton learning of its receipt. About nine o'clock. He went to Trefethen's store and left word that Mr. Emerton desired to see him again. About one o'clock next morning, Trefethen came to the station house, saying that he had been away to visit his girl in Dorchester and that he had not returned before. Next day, he came to the police office again to see if anything had been heard of Tina. He inquired of Mr. Emerton whether or not her mother had heard anything from her. And was told that she had not. He manifested a great deal of excitement, and in reply to Mr. Emerton's question, whether or not he had been paying attentions to the young lady, keeping company with her, carrying on little jokes with her, he denied it in total, telling him then, as he had before, that he was engaged to another young lady and had not paid her any attention at all. The day went by. Mrs. Davis had been visited. More particulars had been ascertained. More evidence accumulated. More of his relations with the girl had been learned. And he came the next day again. He again asked Mr. Emerton if he was sure that the mother had not received a letter from Tina, and he was told that she had not. Nothing was said about his having received a letter from her although we shall show you that he claimed afterwards to have received one on the morning of the 24th. On Saturday the 26th, he appeared on the scene with his brother-in-law, Smith, whom he introduced as a detective acquainted with all the lying-in hospitals in Boston and who could make search of all these and asked her, as he had on the previous occasion, not to mention his name and not to tell the other officers about investigating the case. The particulars of her disappearance were inquired into by Smith. Her description was taken, her picture given to him, and he set to work in search of her. On the 26th, Tina's hat was found near the Wellington Bridge, placed in such a position as to indicate that it had floated ashore from the Mystic River but it will be proved that the hat had never been in the water at all. A search was begun. The river was dragged in all directions. Smith, in the meantime having employed another detective, searched the river beyond the bridge, keeping as far as possible, in every instance as far as it can be discovered, from the exact place where the body was found and the exact place where it was thrown overboard. Counsel then described the finding of the marks on the bridge, indicative of a wagon having been driven onto the footpath a day or two after the finding of the hat by the draw tender, and said it would be proved that the marks showed that the carriage had turned from the sidewalk at about the point where the witness, Fitzpatrick, had heard the terrific shriek of a woman on the night of the disappearance. And gone in the direction of Malden. The body was found about 30 feet from the bridge, 17 days after it had disappeared. Before the body was discovered, on the 9th of January, the officer examined Trefethen's buggy. They found that it had been washed and brushed, but on it they found one single hair which had been committed to the test of a chemist of great experience. Examined under a microscope, found to be a female hair, corresponding in every particular, in fineness and in height, with the hair of Tina Davis. When the body was discovered, Trefethen and Smith, who had been much together and interested in the search, were taken to the station house. They had been found in Trefethen's house, and it was then ascertained that Trefethen had gone through the form of selling his stock of goods, dating the bill of sale on the 5th day of December, though it was afterwards confessed to have been dated back, and really only made on the 31st of December. They were not taken to the station house under arrest, but merely to be questioned. Nothing was said about the finding of the body, no one knew it so far as known except the officers. Smith began to perspire. The cold sweat stood on his forehead. He became so agitated that the officers were obliged to desist him and get him some water to revive him. Each was questioned separately Smith first and Trefethen after. Finally, Officer Whitney said in the presence of the others, Tina has been found. Trefethen sprang to his feet and said, I never thought she would commit suicide. No information had at that time been given him that her body was found and that she was dead. The defendants were then placed under arrest. The medical examiner viewed the body, made an autopsy next day, discovered no marks upon the body, but will testify to the fact that the girl died of drowning, that she went into the water alive, that she was pregnant of a male child and was five or six months in the state of pregnancy. The district attorney then spoke at some length, arguing that Tina had no enemy so far as known in the world, and that the only man who had a motive in getting her out of the way was trefethen he said it would be proved that it was trefethen who wrote the letter mailed in boston and addressed to tina's mother which read mother when you receive this i shall be dead the one you think guilty is innocent goodbye it will also be shown that after the arrest of smith and when the letter was shown to him the first time he then said that Trefethan had received a letter purporting to come from Tina on the morning of the 24th. That Trefethan was then brought in and asked about it and admitted that he had received it. A copy of the letter will be offered in evidence. The substance of that letter was that she had confided to him sometime in December that she was with child, asked him his advice in regards to the manner of disposing of it, acquitting him of any blame, told him that another was responsible and gave as a reason that she had promised the party not to tell his name. He had taken a copy of that letter for his vindication, it is claimed, because the danger there was of losing it. But the letter is now lost, as he says. All means of submitting it to the test to determine by whom it was written had been destroyed by himself. Notwithstanding the importance that he attached to it, even though what he apprehended might occur has occurred. The district attorney closed by saying that he felt the evidence would leave no doubt on the minds of the jurors as to how and at whose hands Tina Davis came to her death, and urged them, by the oath they had taken, to do their duty fearlessly. And regardless of the consequences, we shall show you that trefethen and trefethen alone was the author of her ruin, that he was the only person who had any motive for her death. She was at his beck and call, and he only had the opportunity to dispose of her. We shall ask you to consider the letter, which we claim was written by trefethen reading mother when you see this i shall be dead the one you think guilty is innocent goodbye from the testimony of experts of the highest authority and standing we shall show that the letter both in composition and otherwise is of trefethen's makeup and was mailed in boston at a time after her disappearance when she could not possibly have mailed it herself we shall show you that this girl who was but a mere child of 90 pounds could not have got from her own house to where she was subsequently seen in such a short time we shall show by the contents of her stomach that the state of digestion of the supper she had eaten at five o'clock shows that she died at eight o'clock or thereabouts or 25 minutes after she had left her own house for the purpose of meeting Trefethen, The government will ask you to declare on the evidence we will submit that there is no reasonable doubt of the guilt of Trefethen. After the prosecution's opening statement, it called its first witness, a civil engineer named Charles Mills, who offered his opinion on how the river's current eddies and flood tides could have moved a body to the Medford Flats, the alluvial plain adjacent to the river where Tina Davis was eventually discovered. After that, a very important witness, key to the prosecution, Mary J. Davis, Tina's grieving mother. She was pale and frail-looking and dressed in widow black, according to reporters on the scene. First, she gave background information on how she and Tina had found their way to the area. She then began telling Tina's story from her perspective as Tina's confidant, at least in some areas. Tina's relationship started with Trefethen as purely professional. Yes, it had. After a while, developed into something else. Trefethen had taken advantage of their intimacy to borrow money. Mrs. Davis pointed out that she personally had never been asked by Trefethen to his house, never met his mother, he had never come to their house to eat a meal, and he had given Tina two gifts, a bouquet of flowers and a ring. She also went on to talk in detail about her encounter with him the day after Tina had disappeared. I told Trefethen, she said. That Tina had told me of her condition, and I said I would believe my daughter. You have ruined me, and my daughter, and yourself as well. Why did you do it? Then Trefethen cried and went into the back room while I was waiting on customers. I went in to him afterwards. He said he would go to the police for me when I told him I was going to report the case. He said to me, don't tell my name to anyone just say that Tina went away here after he was there a letter came from me I did not look at it then I did not think it was her handwriting on the envelope when I read it I did not think the contents were written by her the next day which was the day after Christmas Trefithan showed up again and basically told Mary Davis to be patient he was certain He assured her that Tina would be home soon. The day after that, he came again, this time with his brother-in-law, William Smith, whom again he told her was a police detective. (laughs) Of course he was not. Mr. Smith asked for a photo of her, which she gave him. She told Smith what she knew, and Smith replied that she shouldn't talk to any other police officers except for him. He would be her contact person. She then identified Smith in the courtroom as the man she had been told was a detective. During her time on the witness stand, both sides treated her with the utmost deference, and she kept her composure, strong and dignified. Defense attorney Long, on cross-examination, brought up the fact that multiple men had visited Tina at the store, including the pickle lime man and the piano tuner, whom he slyly pointed out was having marital difficulties. He also asked Mrs. Davis about her son, Charles, who years earlier had swallowed arsenic and had required his stomach pumped. The inference seemed to be that suicide attempts ran in the Davis family, which matched up with what was expected to be the primary defense of the two men. A murder had not been committed. It was a suicide instead. Also, another point important for Long to get across, which he made as he questioned Mrs. Davis, was that Tina and Trefethen had never been seen publicly together, not at a theater, a party, a church. They had gone out on a couple of rides and otherwise had been left alone after Mrs. Davis had gone to bed. More than once, uh, she told the court. You found him to be a man of good character, didn't you, up to the time of her disappearance? Long asked. Yes, as far as I knew. More witnesses took the stand. Officer O.W. Tufts related his story of seeing a team of horses resembling trefethen's standing on the side of the road near the corner of Ferry Street and Broadway at about 7.40 p.m. This was in the vicinity of Tina's shop. Officer Tufts identified William Smith as the man standing next to Trefithin's rig. The next witness was Matilda Dares, a middle-aged, bespectacled woman, according to the paper, with a Scotch accent. She not only corroborated Officer Tufts' identification, but added to it, She actually saw Tina Davis at that same time, whom she recognized, walking on the sidewalk in the direction of Smith and the waiting buggy. She was wearing the very same clothes identified as the outfit Tina wore that evening. This was new news to the public, and the paper later reported that Mrs. Dare's delivery was exceptionally convincing. Then came the bridge tender, who had seen the tracks on the bridge spanning the Mystic River on Christmas Eve day. He told the same story that we covered pretty extensively on earlier episodes of Aghast at the Past. That ended the day's proceedings, and the next day saw more coverage, of course, from the Boston Globe. The Globe reported that the men, again, handcuffed together, were brought into the courtroom. They looked calm and collected, not depressed at all by the previous day's developments, although the reporter made mention that it appeared as though Trefethen had been recently crying. The first witness called was the Somerville captain of police, Robert Perry. Uh, I guess before we, we begin a quick geography refresher, the Fellsway Bridge, as it is called now, which runs north-south across the Mystic River, replaced the original Wellington drawbridge in 1892, which played an important role in the crime scene, for it was there that Tina Davis was believed to have either jumped or to have been pushed, depending on who you believe. Trefithan's wagon, again, it had appeared from the tracks to have traveled just a short way south onto the bridge, where it looked as though there had been a bit of a struggle The body was eventually found in a small creek to the east of the bridge, flowing into the north side of the Mystic River, not far from where she had fallen. The cities north of the river included Medford, slightly west, Wellington directly north, Mulden north of Wellington, and Everett to the east. Tina Davis was believed by prosecutors to have been picked up in Everett and taken to the bridge on December 23rd, the night before Christmas Eve, Somerville was the community on the south side of the bridge, and Captain Perry of that town had played a joint role in the investigation. Captain Perry testified that the location of Tina's body, considering the ebbs and flows of the tide, matched up with the police's theory that it had fallen from the bridge. Some minor witnesses were called, including Charles Davis, Tina's brother, whose role was to identify her body in the morgue, he admitted he hadn't seen her for five years. Thomas Durrell, who performed the autopsy on the body, told of his findings on the stand. I was called to view a body on the Wellington Bridge. Next day, I made an autopsy of the body in presence of doctors Swan and Harris. The body was that of a well-developed, though small, girl. She was well-nourished. Over the face were greenish discolorations. The hair was matted and filled with particles of sand. There was a quantity of the mud on the tongue. No external marks of violence were on the body. Over the surface of the brain were a series of little hemorrhages, as if she had died from suffocation. A cut was made from the jaw down to the chest cavity, which was filled with reddish water. The fingers were doughy, and through the lungs and the large air passages were particles of sand. Around the heart was about two ounces of bloody water. The right side of the heart itself was filled with blood. I came to the conclusion that death was caused by drowning. I have no doubt about that. Marks of violence might disappear after death if a body were in the water, but it depends on the degree of violence. Unconsciousness might be produced if she fell from a height of several feet into the water and she would be likely to sink quicker. I should question whether she ever rose to the surface of the water at all. During the cross-examination by Mr. Long, Jarrell admitted that the evidence was consistent with the possibility that Tina had thrown herself into the water One thing he was certain of, she went into the water alive. Dr. Edward Wood, professor of chemistry at Harvard for 21 years, was next to testify. He said that he had received from Dr. Durrell a jar that contained the stomach of Tina Davis. He concluded that she had eaten at 5 p.m. and died at 8 p.m. on the evening of December 23rd. This was an important fact because letters had been mailed from Boston the morning after her disappearance by Tina herself, according to James Trefethen. And while Trefethen supposedly had an alibi for that morning and was nowhere near the city of Boston, there were eyewitness accounts that placed his brother-in-law, William Smith, in Boston Christmas Eve day. So again, the fact that there was barely digested food in her stomach, which matched the dinner she had eaten at home, was important evidence for the prosecution. Dr. Wood also added that if chloroform or ether had been used on her before she'd fallen into the river, the water would have removed all traces of it. He couldn't find any sign of ether in her stomach, but that was not a surprise to him. He also examined a hair taken from Trefethen's buggy and compared it to Tina's hair given to him in a package from the Everett police chief. This hair, he said, corresponds in every particular with the hair in that package. It has the same color and corresponds in diameter. Long jumped on this. Could it have come from someone else as well, he asked. Dr. Wood agreed that it could have. Everett Police Chief Emerton testified next and shared with the court some of James Trefethen's odd behavior. As promised, Trefethen the next day had gone to tell the police that Tina Davis was missing, but as was mentioned in the opening statement, instead of showing concern for her, he was instead extremely agitated that Mrs. Davis was blaming him for Tina's disappearance. When Emerton pressed Trefethen. About the nature of his relationship with Tina, Trefethen responded by saying that he was not familiar or free with her in any way. Emerton then asked him what he had done that evening. Had he seen Tina at all? No, he hadn't, was the reply. He'd harnessed his team at 7 o'clock that night and met his brother at a local spring. They chatted. Then he left and began to deliver goods to various stores. Emerton then told Trefethen that things looked bad for him, on the surface at least, and that he would start an investigation. On Christmas Day, he returned to the police station again, where Emerton was working, and asked the police chief if he had done anything yet. Emerton said he hadn't, although he really had. He had sent Detective Hewitt to see Mrs. Davis almost immediately. Trefethen told him he didn't believe him. Emerton responded by telling Trefethen that a man, name not mentioned, had a year earlier, and this man, by the way, was a friend of Mary Davis. This man had come to see Chief Emerton and asked if he knew what Trefethen's character was and asked if he could vouch for him. Emerton said that he thought Trefethen was okay, and the man proceeded to tell him that Mrs. Davis had a daughter who was on the cusp of a relationship with Trefethen, and wanted to know the kind of man he was. I guess if you're looking for a character reference, one of the best places to go is directly to the chief of police. No doubt Mrs. Davis had some suspicions and sent somebody to ask the chief of police if Trefethen had a criminal background before things went any further. Uh, this took Trefethen by extreme surprise. He was floored when Emerton told him this, but but he quickly recovered and he admitted to the chief that they had gone out on a drive on one or two occasions. On his last visit with Tina, he said, she confided to him that she was pregnant with another man's child. The chief would have none of this. I told him, he said, that he had not been telling me the truth for I had learned that friends and relatives had considered him the acknowledged beau of Tina. So much so that when he came to the house, they were left alone together. This information, by the way, had been gotten a few hours earlier uh, from the detective's interview with Mrs. Davis. So Trefethen vehemently denied all and left. The next day he came back once more and asked Emerton if he knew where Tina Davis was. As an aside for someone who claimed he had little to no relationship to Tina, he sure seemed concerned suddenly, right? Emerton said he didn't know where she was, and then Trefethen blabbed about the money he had lent her, the $300. Emerton continued in his testimony, saying that Mrs. Davis told police that Trefethen had borrowed another $20 from Tina the day before her disappearance, when he told Trefathan about that, Trefithan did not deny it. So again, Trefithan returned to the police station after that, and this time he told Emerton he had seen a lawyer and could not talk to him. Then another strange conversation happened, this time with William Smith, the brother-in-law. As Emerton and other police officers were dragging the river for Tina's body on January 7th, they saw a boat a ways away, whose occupants just seemed to be watching them. Emerton sent one of his officers to intercept the suspicious craft, and when it was brought back to the police chief, he recognized William Smith, Trefethen's brother-in-law, as one of the three men. Another one of the men was a friend of Trefethen's and Smith's named Richardson. He asked Richardson what they were doing, and the reply was that it was none of his business. He had as good a right to boat in the river as the chief of police had. So three days later, Tina's body was found. Trefethen was questioned immediately. The strange interview with Trefethen was summarized in the opening statement. So they were arrested. Emerton put the men in jail and soon confronted William Smith about Mrs. Davis's letter and the suspicious handwriting purported to be Tina's. Smith replied that he did not recognize it, but that Trefethen also had a letter from Tina. And this was the first time that the police had heard about this. When they asked Trefethen to produce it, Trefethen told Emerton he had misplaced it. Emerton went back to Smith, hoping to play one man off the other. And after some intense questioning, Smith admitted that he had gone into Trefethen's cellar one day, took a shovel, and dug part of the floor up. Expecting to find, quote unquote, what he did not want to find, but he did not. (laughs) Emerton asked him straight out, you did not expect to find the body? Smith replied, I don't know, but I expected to find what I did not want to be there. More witnesses followed, who reported seeing people that night that matched the descriptions of Tina, Trefethen, and Smith. A slow drip of circumstantial evidence to help buffer the case for prosecutors so much of what the prosecution was trying to do of course was establish a timeline that showed that between 7 and 8 30 p.m trefethen would have had time to pick tina up in everett drive to the wellington bridge push her over and then head back to a store in charlestown around 8 50 p.m where he was confirmed to be seen by independent witnesses. Again, Trefethen's claim that he had picked up his brother and dropped him off during the time of Tina's disappearance, this was suspicious to authorities because it was a a family member corroborating his alibi. And and Trefethen's entire family, they believed, were protecting him in every way they could. So coverage continued the next day, Thursday, April 28th. And with it, some highly damning evidence against Trefethen and Smith. Ralph Hustis, who knew Trefethen by sight and worked as a stamp clerk at the Charlestown post office at the time of Tina's disappearance, swore that sometime during the week of Christmas, Trefethen had come into the post office one evening and asked questions about how postmarks worked. He wanted to know if a letter mailed from Charlestown would bear a Boston or a Charlestown postmark. Then came the handwriting experts. The first was Elbert Southworth. He stated to the court that, in his opinion, the writing of Trefethen and that contained in the anonymous letter was identical. Southworth believed that Trefethen was attempting to reproduce Tina's handwriting in a very unnatural way. Another expert on handwriting, Charles French, the principal of French's Business College in Boston, backed up Mr. Southworth's conclusions. From my examination of them, the letters, he said, I should say that the anonymous letter and the envelope were written in the same hand that wrote the Trefethen Standard. I do not believe Miss Davis could have written this letter. In my opinion, there is an attempt to disguise in the letter and in the envelope the natural handwriting and an attempt to imitate Miss Davis's handwriting." He went on to compare the specific letters on each paper and envelope and how they were similar. Other witnesses were then called who claimed to have seen intimate moments between Tina and Trafethen at various points. One young lady named Sarah Dunham said she walked into Tina's store and saw them kissing. She had also seen for herself Tina's pearl and turquoise ring, an engagement ring from Trefithan, Tina told her. Then the government officially rested its case against Trefethen and Smith at 4.15 p.m., and the court adjourned until the next day, when it would be the defense's turn to present their case. On the next episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892, the conclusion of the Tina Davis murder trial. It's the defense's turn. The jury deliberates. And a final verdict.